Stay Current is a multimedia publication designed to keep healthcare professionals up to date with standards of care and new emerging ideas. Stay Current is created and edited by Todd Ponsky, Nicholas Bruns, and Ian Glenn in partnership with Globalcast MD and is recorded and produced at Akron Children's Hospital in Akron, Ohio. Welcome to Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery, and today we're going to be talking about a rare finding of uh, pediatric surgery, and that is cloacal extrophy. And although it's rare, it is quite complicated, and uh, many of us have a difficult time understanding exactly what we should be doing in certain situations, and uh, we have none other than the great Alberto Pena, who is with us today and going to be guiding us through some of the current concepts and controversies of cloacal extrophy. Dr. Alberto Peño is a clinical professor of surgery at University of Cincinnati and is the founding director of the Alberto Peña Colorectal Center at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Dr. Peña, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Well, let, before we get going on some of the concepts and controversies, let me ask you, can you explain what cloacal extrophy is and what are the components of cloacal extrophy? Sure. Uh, the um, cloacal extrophy is a group of uh, congenital malformations that affect the gastrointestinal uh, colorectal area. They, it also affects the urogenital tract, the, um, the, the, sp the spine and the cord, sometimes affects the motion of the lower extremities and and um, and therefore has many implications in the quality of life of the unfortunate patients that suffer from this basically it consists in, a, in the babies are born um uh, with an omphalocele uh, typically with an omphalocele they also have all the um stigmata of the of the extrophy of the bladder in other words they have a bladder extrophy the pubic bones are separated um the uh, below the omphalocele is the bladder totally um extrophic and uh, and it's actually one can identify two half bladders in other words one hemibladder on one side, the other hemibladder on the other side, completely open. And in the middle, in between both hemibladders, it is relatively easy to identify gastrointestinal mucosa also protruding. It usually is the cecum that is also open, completely open. And um, the, through the ileocecal valve of that cecum, Sometimes the small bowel uh, uh, becomes extrophic. In other words, it's like an like an intussusception, and the, and the babies are born with a prominent um, piece of bowel um, that is that is known as elephant trunk. Mm -hmm. So, in a, if the patient happens to be male, then they they are born with two little hemiphalluses separated and different degrees of separation and uh, usually they have normal gonads and uh, if the patient is a female what they have is uh, two hemivaginas that the orifices are located below the extrophic bladder and if you if we introduce an instrument or a cystoscope through that we can see that both hemivaginas run uh, laterally, in other words, they 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 away from the midline, and they, they, the patients have two hemiuterus. Now, inside the abdomen, uh, we find that these patients have a spectrum of uh, gastrointestinal deformities. The most characteristic is a short I'm sorry, short colon or almost absent colon or no colon at all, sometimes two cecums, sometimes two appendices, and most commonly they have, rather than having a normal colon, they have a, a pouch of colonic tissue uh, with an extremely bizarre blood supply. 
Uh, there is a, a growing belief that these patients have no colon. Actually, as I mentioned, this is a spectrum that goes from a normal colon to almost absent colon, and that the amount of colon that the patient is born with has very important repercussions and uh, implications for the for the patient and for the pediat general pediatric surgeon. In the urinary tract, they may have also problems in the kidneys, but but uh, most of the time the kidneys work well. In the spine, they oh, they have tethercord and different degrees of spinal abnormalities, sometimes myelomeningocele, that affects the motion of the lower extremities. So so basically that's the that's a cloacal extrophy, and there is one variant that I hope we can mention later, that is babies that are born with no omphalocele, with no bladder extrophy, but inside the abdomen they have all the uh, malformations that I described. In other words, the only difference is that they have an intact skin, abdominal skin. Mm -hmm. But inside, they have a completely open bladder, open inside. In other words, they have no bladder neck, but they, they is not extrophic. They have a single perineal orifice, but very large. Hmm. So, wow. You know, this is a pretty complex and devastating collection of malformations that you just described. And just to repeat, it's the gastrointestinal tract, the urogenital tract, the spine and sometimes the movement of the lower extremities and the abdominal wall. Have we progressed in the, the management of this condition and the sequelae? Um, you, you know, these, these patients must be treated by a, a group of subspecialties. And in each area, there have been some progresses in the management of these patients. Um, like uh, the, the entire... As you know, the entire technology and science related with medicine is improving, and therefore we have a better way to do operations, to a safer way to do it, intensive care, parental nutrition, knowledge of the metabolic concern of the patients. But it is true that we can repair these malformations in a safer way, but we we cannot claim that we progress very much in terms of the functional sequela of these patients. In other words, <clears throat> a patient that is born with a cloacal extrophy is a patient that would suffer for for, for life, uh, serious limitations, bowel control, urinary control, sexual function, and uh, spinal abnormalities. And we can manage those things, but we cannot make them normal. You've mentioned now uh, twice, so I want to touch on this, about the sexual function. You also talked about that in boys they can have a hemiphallus. Um, there's some controversy related to gender assignment, and I think the, the reason is that the male babies are born with the two little hemiphallus and or hemiphalli, I think, and it's extremely challenging to create a, a functional phallus. So what is your opinion, and what is the current accepted management of this problem? See, the, um, in the early times, uh, when a baby uh, was born with a cloacal extrophy and happened to be male, the general uh, idea was that it was better for, to do a, a gon bilateral gonadectomy, removal of those hemiphalluses, and create a vagina with a piece of bowel, assign the uh, female gender to the patient and raise the patient as a female, educate the, and like, a, uh, like a female. And that, when, I was, when I was in my training, that, that's what, we, what everybody used to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, several things happened through the years. First of all, those patients grew up, and, they, and we, we got all scared when we saw that even when they were raised as females and they dressed like females and they were received hormones to look like females, they had attitudes and, and behavior very much of a, of a male. Mm. And, and worse than that is the fact that when many of them learn that they were actually chromosomically uh, females 
and uh, somebody decided uh, on behalf of them to raise them as as uh, females, they got very upset mm-hmm. because they they and they are right. They said, uh, um, and the, the parents and the doctors explained that it was very it would be a very difficult life to re- to be raised as a as a male with an inadequate phallus to function sexually, and they the answer from these uh, young individuals was. Who told you that sex is the most important thing? I want, I wanted my gonads back, and and with modern techniques, uh, uh, those individuals can fertilize, can they can have children, and they say being a male is much more than having a phallus, and they are right. So now the pendulum came back, and most uh, institutions and doctors agree that they are if a patient is born with an XY chromosome, should be raised as, as male. And uh, um, many uh, visionaries, ambitious uh, pediatric urologists and plastic surgeons are working in the reconstructing a phallus to make it as functional as possible, which remains to be seen. But uh, uh, at least that's what's happening at present time. So you think that they've made progress? I mean, I know we don't know yet, but... Uh, as far as techniques have evolved recently that they're becoming better at creating a functional phallus, possibly? Yes, uh, I have seen very interesting creative uh, uh, ideas that show the ingenuity of of, of the, the doctors, but we cannot claim that they have a, a normal functional phallus. But they are, they are very interesting. I have seen reconstructed some of those, and uh, uh, it's better than nothing, I think. Yeah. I hope that this conversation will be heard by pediatric surgeons and hopefully by pediatric urologists. This should be called a unified approach, and most institutions are doing that. And these babies should be delivered in places that have that that uh, team of team approach to the problem. Dr. Pena, you mentioned a unified approach to cloacal extrophy and this multidisciplinary team. But what if there's a pediatric surgeon or a pediatric urologist that really feels comfortable doing this by themselves? Is there a problem with that? In my early experience in the management of, of cloacal extrophies is that if when the baby was born in a place where there was a prominent pediatric urologist dominating the, the, the surgical department, and those patients receive a lot of attention from the urologic point of view and not very good attention from the gastrointestinal point of view. The same similar, something similar happened when the babies were born in a place where the pediatric surgeons were the leaders in charge of the baby, and many times they kind of uh, forgot about the urologic concerns of these patients. Okay, Dr. Pena, so let's say tomorrow I'm going in to do a cloacal extrophy repair. What are the elements of the case that I need to be preparing for? What am I going to be doing in that case tomorrow? The role of the pediatric surgeon would be to try to close the omphalocele. I say try because some, the omphalocele may, may be minimal or maybe a giant. And as you know, not all omphaloceles can be closed immediately. So to try to close the omphalocele. But the second more important part is to, if you look at the cloacal extrophy, he should be able to differentiate what is urothelium, that is the bladder, from intestinal mucosa and and separate those structures. Mm-hmm. The way we do it, we put multiple stitches and the edges that separate the urothelium of the bladder from the bowel and make an incision and separate completely the gastrointestinal tract from the urinary tract. By doing that, then the urologist can bring together both hemibladders and the urologist can try to close that bladder. <clears throat> sometimes they can, sometimes they cannot but he he can try to do that. Okay, so just to summarize, the pediatric surgeon needs to close the omphalocele, they need to separate the bowel from the bladder, and you talk about creating an end colostomy. Can you clarify exactly what you mean and what is the importance of creating an end colostomy? The pediatric surgeon, once she separated all the gastrointestinal tract, then he has to figure out what 
what's there because the, he must be ready, prepared to see the most bizarre type of anatomy. They may end up with two or three little pieces of colon, and he should figure out which one is proximal, which one is distal, looking at the mesentery, and put everything together and create an end colostomy, a real end colostomy. Mm -hmm. The re reason why I repeat that is because it is very common for pediatric surgeons all over the world facing one of these cases, simply look inside the abdomen, grab a piece of small bowel, and open an ileostomy. That is a very bad thing to do, and the patient will suffer several consequences because of that, because by doing that, he's leaving the, all the colon, either small or much colon, but leaving all that distally attached, attached to the urinary tract. Then the urologist, the urologist may be very happy because of that, because he will close the bladder, and now he has a natural congenital bladder augmentation. Isn't that beautiful from right. their point of view? But that has serious consequences because, number one, the baby will be absorbing urine from, from the newborn period, which will give him um, hyperchloremic acidosis that may interfere with the growth and development of the, uh, of the ba development of the baby. In addition, those pieces of colon left distally uh, defunctionalized or attached to the urinary tract will not grow, mm -hmm. will remain tiny. And um, in, for the colon to grow, for the coronary tissue to grow, it requires the passing of fecal matter through its lumen. So the obligation of the pediatric surgeon is to be sure that all gastrointestinal tissue is incorporated into the gastrointestinal tract and to be sure that the fecal stream will pass through that and open a real end colostomy. We, I say that because we frequently receive patients that receive a colostomy, and I'm sorry, an ileostomy. In another place, they are not growing well. They are already two or three years old, and they, they have serious problems managed by nephrologists because of the hyperchloremic acidosis and, um, and big losses through the ileostomy. And for that, we design an operation called rescue operation. We have to go there and rescue the gastrointestinal tissue that belongs to the gastrointestinal tract, incorporated incorporated in the gastrointestinal tract, and open an end colostomy. By doing that, the acidosis disappears next day. So the pediatric surgeon is the is the advocate of the baby, and is going is is going to be there to be sure that all gastrointestinal tract is going to be used as gastrointestinal tract. When the patient receives an ileostomy and left defunctionalized bowel, mm -hmm. I already mentioned the consequences, the right. negative consequences of that. Then the operation that we offer to those patients consists in taking down the ileostomy, mm -hmm. looking for the uh, colonic tissue that is there, closing the ileostomy, end-to-end um, um, -end anastomosis, figure out the anatomy of that, of the colon that is distal, and doing an end colostomy. That's a rescue operation. Separating the, all the colonic tissue from the urologic, from the urogenital tract and, and, um, and open a real end colostomy, an ileostomy closure. That's the operation. So when the, when the colon was incorporated into the bladder closure, you, yes. go, you go and take that down. Yes, you have to go there and, and, and remove that from, separate that. Sometimes it's very easy, maybe a little bit more complex, depends on how much manipulation the baby had at birth. But usually it's not, it's not very complicated, it's not a problem. Dr. Pena, before, I want to interrupt you for one second. Um, sure. So you said that this is a, a problem that you've seen. What is the reason that that happens? What's the challenge that, that surgeons will mistakenly make an ileostomy, and how can that be avoided? Are there any tricks for you to advise a surgeon how they may not lead to that problem? So the, the first problem is that, that, that most surgeons must accept the idea that they are dealing with the spectrum. And sometimes the, the, uh, 
the colonic uh, component of the malformation is so complex that they prefer not to not to even look into that. It's much easier and simply, and a way to a way out is to open an ileostomy and forget about the rest. Mm. So, uh, but um, the surgeon must be prepared to deal. That every case is going to be different. From cases that have, a, for instance, pediatric surgeon finds one of those pouches. It's a, it's a big sack of colonic tissue with a very bizarre blood supply. And he has to open a stoma and connect that to the, to f- try to figure out what's the most distant part of that and open a stoma, that, a real end colostomy. Do not leave gastrointestinal tract inside defunctionalized. That's the main, okay. main thing. Okay, so I get the steps of the operation, but some talk about doing a pelvic osteotomy in the initial procedure for a pubic approximation. Is this something that needs to be done or should be done at the initial operation or later on? In some institutions, they, the orthopedic surgeons are very uh, active and they want to participate from day one, and they claim that they can try to approximate the pubic bones. That experience comes from from the bladder extrophy patients. Bladder extrophy patients have separated pubic bones, but the separation of the pubic bones in bladder extrophy is not as severe as the separation of the bones in blood and cloacal extrophies. So most of the times, even when the orthopedic surgeons go to the operating room, they one and they do a, a pelvic osteotomy, is every time I see a patient years later, the pubic bones are separated. Mm-hmm. Not perhaps not as much as when they were born, but but they it's very difficult to see a cloacal extrophy with the pubic bones completely together. But mm-hmm. but in some institutions they routinely they do a osteotomy, which is okay because facilitates the reconstruction of the bladder and facilitates the reconstruction of the omphalocele. In your practice, Dr. Pena, what problems have you encountered with the the creation of an encolostomy? When when we open an encolostomy, um, the babies usually recover well and they grow and develop, and they don't have the big uh, water and so and, and sodium losses of an ileostomy. That's very good, but but frequently that piece of colon that we incorporated doesn't have good motility. There is something, uh, and it, that has not been described well. The fact is that. Even a beautiful, a technically correct colostomy, not stricture, sometimes doesn't work well. Like the motility of that colon that we incorporated is not good. And under those circumstances, the babies sometimes have behaved like, a, like they, are, they don't pass stool easily, and sometimes they have bacterial proliferation, similar to what we, saw, what we see in Hirschfeld disease. And then the surgeon has to... And, and learn to, to teach the family how to irrigate the, the colostomy to try to, because the, the peristalsis is not good, so you, you have to irrigate that in this, through the stoma, um, like we do in enterocolitis and Hirschfeld through the rectum. You know, we pass a tube and pass small, small volumes of saline solution and suck to try to get all the, the fecal material from that stoma. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a problem that I have seen in those patients. And then the, the, the pediatric surgeon has to wait until the, uh, the time of bowel control. You know that babies below, below three years of age, they, they are at home. They are on diapers. That's the only way they know that they, their life is like that. So they don't care about the diapers. But at some point, the parents want to send them to school. Mm-hmm. And usually in the United States, that's around three years of age. And at that time, it starts the second part of the management, which is the decision-making of how to achieve dryness and clean, clean. To have a clean child in the end with no stool and, and no, um, no stoma and no urine in the diaper. Mm-hmm. That's the time of, of, for decisions. And um, And... And that's what requires a lot of coordination with the urologist. The reason being that from the urologic point of view, these patients have an inadequate bladder, a tiny bladder, same, same as in bladder extrophy. 
So most patients will require something called bladder augmentation. And the urologist is going to use gastrointestinal tract to augment the bladder. And the the defender of the patient is the pedi- of the gastrointestinal tract is the pediatric surgeon. If the patient has if the patient was born with no colon whatsoever, then the patient is a candidate for stomach for life. Mm-hmm. We should never try to pull the terminal ileum down, even if the patient shows some evidence of sphincter in the perineum, because the patients will never have bowel control. Mm-hmm. So we only uh, consider for pull-through patients that have uh, the capacity to form solid stool because the patients with solid stool, they respond to the bowel management. Patients with a cloacal extrophies, um, it's extremely unusual for them to have bowel control. So the overwhelming majority of them will need of our bowel management program, which is, as you know, the administration of enemas to keep the patient clean. But that only works if the patient has solid stool. And the patient only has solid stool if he has enough colon. Can you explain what the importance is of preserving the colon length? So during the newborn period, these pediatric surgeons should not underestimate the the capacity to grow of the little pieces of colon. <clears throat> Sometimes they look so tiny that it, it, it makes... Uh, if the pediatric surgeon feels like throwing that into the garbage, that should not be done. Should be incorporated everything. Little pieces of colon will grow during those three years. Mm. And, um, and then the patient may need a contrast study through the stomach to see the size of the colon, like, like a retrograde injection of contrast material to the stomach to see how the bowel is, is growing. We do that every year. And then... The question is, if we take that colostomy down as a pull-through, as a neo-anus, um, can we keep the patient clean with bowel management? Rather than taking the risk, what we do is to do something called bowel management program through the stomach, enemas through the stomach, as to, to, to simulate that the stomach is the new anus and teach the family to give an enema through the stomach and find by trial and error the enema that is capable of keeping uh, emptying the, that pouch completely, that colonic pouch, and then see if the patient uh, can stay 24 hours without any stool in the stomach bag. In other words, if, if you give the enema through the stomach and for 24 hours there is no stool whatsoever, then we may assume that if we pull that stomach down as a rectum, the bowel management is going to work. That's great. And to clarify, what age do you start trying to do that? Usually at the at the age when the patients and the, and the family start thinking and considering the possibility of of, uh, of avoiding the enemy. They want to send the child to school, so they want to send the child to school clean, hopefully without stoma, usually after three years of age. After three, okay. But, but, but before making the decision, they have to, to, to create a communication with the pediatric urologist because, as I was telling you, if the pediatric urologist wants to use bowel for the augmentation, if the, if our patient has very little colon, if the main problem is that cannot form solid stool, then we don't let the pediatric surgeons to take more gastrointestinal tract. See? If the patient happens to have a lot of colon and um, a big pouch, we can even share part of that to, to the bladder augmentation. Or if we don't want the, the pediatric urologist to touch the bowel because it maybe is borderline forming solid stool, then he the urologist has the, the option of using stomach for the bladder augmentation. Mm. And the and and this should be coordinated because remember the rec, the the colonic that we are going to pull down goes behind is the most posterior structure in the pelvis. And then in front of that comes the bladder with the bladder augmentation. So you don't don't let the pediatric urologist do the augmentation before we decide whether or not the patient would need a pull-through. Because if, the, if we decide that the patient needs a pull-through after the bladder augmentation, it's going to be a nightmare to go behind all that reconstruction to do the pull-through. 
So I have a few questions for you. In a patient that comes to you with uh, liquid stools, not solid stools, and uh, uh, it's appearing to you that they probably have an ileostomy, how do you, is that how you gain your suspicion, I guess through the contrast enema, through the stoma enema, how you determine whether or not to go looking to see if, in fact, before giving up on them and saying they're going to have a stoma, that there might be a chance that they have colon somewhere in there? Um, yes, we, we do a contrast enema because sometimes, as you know, a patient may have a, what we call paradoxical diarrhea. In other words, with the contrast study, we may find fecal impaction, solid stool inside, mm-hmm. and liquid stool coming around the impaction. So right. if the okay. patient has very little colon or no colon, the patient will stay with the stomach for life. Yeah. And, so, and, at, and at that point, we give free hands to the urologist. He can do whatever he wants. Right. Okay. Because you're, you're now, are you essentially done at that point? If you have a patient that's just not a candidate for a pull-through, the pediatric surgeon's job is done? That, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Just take care of the stoma, potential right, right. complications of the stoma, that's all. Let's say the, the patient does appear to be a candidate for a pull-through. Uh, and let's say they're about three years of age now. You're going to be doing a planning a pull-through. How do you, I mean, this is such a, yeah, the bladder augmentation that may come into play. Do you do them at the same time? Who else is involved in the operation? How do you plan this pull-through, and who else might be doing simultaneous procedures? Yes, we, we uh, work together. Urologists and pediatric surgeons ideally should be done at that operation at the same time. Usually it's like a 12-hour affair, you know. Mm-hmm. And first, first goes the pediatric surgeon because that goes in the back. Right. And uh, the, the fact that the patient is a separated pubic bones makes things a little easier. But we take the stomach down and we pull it behind the behind the bladder into the pelvis, mm-hmm. and um, and once we finish that part, then the pediatric urologist uh, with uh, by the way, with or without a malone because the patient may have two appendix one or two appendices, and and since we turn the colon down, the, the appendix stays up in the abdomen, and we may do a, a malone mm-hmm. uh, to administer the enemas through that. And and then once we pull the colon, then the pediatric urologist uh, works in the bladder augmentation, and uh, using usually a small bowel, and uh, and or stomach. They almost never use colon because we need the colon to form solid stool. Okay. Uh, occasionally, when the patients are born with that giant pouch of colon. Is so large that, that and and has very very poor motility, but that the fact that his poor motility is a big pouch makes it makes that pouch good for bowel bowel management because because it doesn't have peristalsis you just irrigate that once a day and because it doesn't move the patient remains clean in between. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's so giant that you can share a little piece for the pediatric urologist, but that's unusual. Usually they use small bowel and or stomach. So um, can you talk to me for a second about the approach and the technique of doing the pull-through in these patients? I know that you do that before they do the augmentation. How about uh, any advice about exposure, about technique on doing this pull-through since it's quite different yeah. than the usual? Sure. So we, uh, in, in you know, in colorectal pediatric surgery, we have learned to use midline abdominal incisions, mm-hmm. always. The reason for the midline abdominal incision is because we want to keep the flanks and the iliac, uh, the, the, iliac, the, um, the, low, the lower quadrants and the upper quadrants lateral for the stomas, for potential stomas. So we enter in the midline with a, from the siphoid all the way down to the area of the pubis, mm-hmm. open everything, and uh, usually you have to deal with a lot of peritoneal adhesions. And then we take the stoma down. We, uh, we, we mo- place multiple silk stitches around the stoma and perform a dissection, circumferential dissection, until the stoma is completely separated from the abdominal wall. And then the next part is really ingenious because you have to, one has to look very carefully as to the type of blood supply that the patient has. 
expect, we should expect a very bizarre type of blood supply. All kind of aberrant, abnormal um, um, vessels that these, these patients may have. And we should be very careful because not to ligate a crucial, important vessel because we may lose that colon. And and see the the uh, the branches of the the vessels to to be able to manipulate the blood supply, divide some vessels without um, without damaging the blood the blood supply as to be able to reach the perineum. That I cannot describe more except that that you know that you, uh, when you deal with colon or or small bowel and you want to mobilize that. You, have, you are allowed to ligate some arcades, provided you are looking at the at other arcades that will give blood supply to the distal part of the bowel. That, but but it, that's a relatively easy in colon, normal colon and a small bowel. The problem here is that they sometimes they have a very bizarre type of blood supply. But if you if you if we are careful and observe and study the blood supply. We can make a, a decision as to which vessels we can ligate and which patients, which vessels we cannot ligate. Sometimes it reaches down without ligating any vessel because that's the the anatomy of the patient. And then you, we just put it in the back. We have to create the, the space behind the bladder, which is easy. It's, it's not a problem. And put the bowel. And then we these, these patients don't have to go into prone position. Because they have a, the the atrophy makes everything anterior, hmm. so you uh, we just work anteriorly with a, a kind of leg frog position, mm-hmm. and you, by doing that you have access to the entire perineum of the patient, so you don't have to be in, usually the sphincters in these patients are poor, mm-hmm. so everything is done anteriorly. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was wondering about whether you did them prone when you did the, at the end, but you you don't. You keep them. no. There is no posterior sacs in in these patients because everything is anterior. Okay. The, the, if you put the patient prone, you you cannot see exactly the um, and you are limited because the oh, the entire everything is anterior. Everything is uh, the pubic bones are separated, so the the pub the coccyx is very much and mm-hmm. so it's much more comfortable to work in a, a supine position with the, the knees a little separated like a leg frog mm-hmm. and you have access to the entire perineum okay that's great i that was a great uh summary for me all right dr pena the the mom says to you let's take uh two patients one that you were able to do a pull through and one not the mom says can you tell me what's the prognosis of of my child, what's their quality of life going to be like, and and how often do you want to see them, and for how long do you want to follow them? Yes, the uh, um, the patients uh, will have problems. They will be patients for life because of uh, uh, orthopedic problems. Um, sometimes they, uh, I have seen teenagers that are unhappy about the. The fact that the pubic bones remain separated, and some um, ambitious, dedicated orthopedic surgeons have been able to bring the pubic bone much closer, mm-hmm. because when you have the when one a person has the pubic bone separated, then we walk like uh, with the with the with the feet kind of separated, pointing lateral, mm-hmm. and looks kind of ugly, and that's that's uh, they complain about that. All the patients that have severe spinal problems, they have to keep being followed by pediatric orthopedics and by a neurosurgeon because they have tethercore. Sometimes they need a, a cord uh, release uh, for the tethercore, and they have to be followed by a, 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 the, the neurosurgeon. Can you talk to me about the female reproduction in the patient with cloacal extrophy? Gynecologically speaking, uh, when you, we do the uh, the pull through, we try to approximate the vaginas as much as possible. The remember that everything is is a spectrum, so the degree of separation of the vaginas could be minimal. The vaginas are together with the vaginal septum, only separating a little bit one from the other in the upper part. In those cases, we remove the septum in between as high as possible. 
But some other cases are the vaginas run in completely different directions, and you cannot bring them together because uh, because of the blood supply prevents us from doing that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and sometimes we elect to remove one of the vaginas and leave another one, the one that has a better looking cervix, uh, and and that you you make that we make that decision at the time of the pull through because. You don't want to. We don't want to be there all the times because of the peritoneal adhesions. So these um, these patients, um, if they, if they have functional hemiuterus, may become pregnant, but it's a high risk pregnancy. Must be followed by a specialized pediatric gynecologist. Uh, in general, we advise not to become pregnant, but some some of the, of the patients want to be pregnant mm-hmm. and, uh, and that that's a problem because uh, the abdomen is 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 very limited in space and but but they may deliver by cesarean section in addition hemiuterus has a great tendency to produce miscarriages and premature labors they should mm-hmm. know that from the beginning right. and, and and then from the from the urologic point of view these patients would need a, a bladder augmentation and a mitrofanov. A, con- a piece of bowel could be the appendix, a second appendix, or part. Uh, sometimes we, uh, if the patient has a very long appendix, we use half for the urologist, half for us. And with the appendix, they make a conduit for catheterization to empty the bladder intermittently. But of course, that's not free of complications because the, uh, an augmented bladder. The bowel that we use produces a lot of mucus, and the mu- if the mucus stays there, it forms stones. So the the, family, the, the we need a good team of the, uh, nurses in charge of uh, teaching the family how to to keep the bladder clean, not only to empty the bladder but to remove the mucus, irrigations to remove the mucus and and avoid uh, infections and teach the family how to do irrigations with sometimes sometimes with gentamizing to be sure that the, the all the mucus that is produced comes out should not be left there. Mm-hmm. And needs a follow up from the urologic point of view to be sure that the the patient the kidneys are not suffering because the patient may have reflux and and that should be uh, followed carefully. Sometimes the mitrofanov stops working or it leaks urine and needs a redo, a re, uh, um, tightening of the valve the, of the mitrofanov, the same as it happens in the Malone. So these are patients for life. And one thing that we are seeing now is the problem of, uh, of moving toward adult life. When these patients go to adult hospitals, they don't feel well. Because um, the adult um, urologists, for instance, or adult orthopedic surgeons, not all of them have experience in these malformations. So the patients feel desolated, and we try to follow them as much as possible because because they, they feel more confident within a pediatric environment, even when they are adults. So what is interesting about this is a very personal observation. Patients with cloacal extrophy, when they grow up, are particularly charming and intelligent. I don't know if it's just uh, my feeling, but uh, um, I'm very impressed by how charismatic, how intelligent, how beautiful are these patients when they grow up. And um, and some of them are uh, they they uh, they manage their problem and they, they still have more energy to help others to, to manage their own problems. So now with the pull-through network, the patients are getting together and talking about their problems and so forth. What is, can you clarify the pull-through network? A pull, yes, a pull-through network is a national organization that uh, we were there at the beginning when it was created. Um, something similar to the to all the organizations that are done, like cystic fibrosis, heart uh, fund, uh, and breast cancer, and so forth. So a group of parents of children born with anorectal malformations or Hirschsprung disease, or patients that have problems with bowel and urinary control, they created, they got together to create this organization called 
pull-through network. And uh, now it grew, is great because uh, um, they have over a thousand members now. Wow. They meet every year, they have their own meeting and they invite doctors there, uh, to give to give talks to the to the patients they are very enthusiastic and and it, that's very good because um they they become powerful you, you see the uh, colorectal problems my believe colorectal and urogenital problems have been um left behind in terms of of a scientific approach and funds allocated for research and all that because they are not elegant problems, are problems related with stool, with urine, with sex, and institutions are not crazy about receiving those patients. So we believe that the, 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 those problems did not receive enough attention, you know, mm-hmm. funds for research and, and work, and they need a lot of help. And people don't talk much about that because they are considered kind of secret problems, you know. And therefore, the society doesn't know much about that. And actually, there are many, many patients suffering from this. Well, the, the network's great, and it's certainly something that I'm going to tell my patients about. So I'm yeah. glad you brought that up. I just um, I want to clarify and make sure I understand this in summary. So the initial operation, the pediatric surgeon is going to close the emphalocele, going to create a colostomy. And at the same time, the urologists are going to close the bladder um, what else happens during the initial operation? Is there any yes. other? Yes, the the emphalocele you know, is closed. The bladder, uh, the 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 bowel is separated from the urinary tract, and end colostomy is created. And the urologist will try to close the bladder. Sometimes they cannot. Mm-hmm. They they just uh, approximate a little bit, and and then they have other stages to keep closing, trying to close the bladder. But the function of the uh, pediatric surgeon is to 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 try to close the omphalocele. Sometimes it requires another stage to completely close the omphalocele. Okay. And the orthopedic surgeons? And the orthopedic surgeons, in some institutions, they go ahead and do a osteotomy at the beginning of the procedure. Okay. And other institutions, they prefer to wait that two or three months and do the osteotomy alone without the, our participation. Okay. And dealing with the... Uh, so then, then the next operation is usually going to be about three years of age after once the bladder is closed, and then you're talking about doing the pull through, doing the bladder augmentation, um, the, the vaginal reconstruction if you're going to do that. Is that right? Yes. Before that, before the considering the pull through, there may be stoma problems. You know, functional stoma, the function of the stoma. Uh, the uh, the as I said the, the colon that we the colostomy that we open is uh, we open a colostomy in a very um, poor motility type of colon so be prepared to to um, do irrigation through that stomach to to help with the poor peristalsis of the patient. That's that's a great yeah element that's in in the middle there between before pull through. Um, well, um, I actually, one last question for you. Um, what, where are we as far as prenatal diagnosis of this condition? Yes, uh, it, it's, that's, that's a very uh, interesting, good question because, uh, as you know, we are making big progresses in prenatal diagnosis with the imaging technology that is used. And uh, fortunately, the, um, the diagnosis of, of anorectal and urogenital malformation in utero is easier in the most complex defects. In other words, we cannot claim that we can diagnose a rectoperineal fistula. Mm-hmm. A simple type of anorectal malformation is difficult to, to detect. Number one, because the, the uh, imaging uh, procedures doesn't have the necessary definition. Number two, because those patients with benign malformations don't have other associated defects. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you get into the complex type of malformations, usually they have spinal problems, and the spine, you can see it very early in utero. Usually they have uh, no bladder. You don't see the bladder in utero because it's extrophic. And therefore, and even from the week 20 in the pregnancy, if you see no bladder, that's, that's a bad sign. So yes, the answer is yes, we can detect 
uh, these malformations reasonable early. And, um, and But keep in mind that it's a spectrum, so we cannot claim that we can make a very accurate diagnosis in all of them. But yes, I would say that in this, in this malformation that we can make the diagnosis earlier, and that will allow the family, number one, to make a decision about interruption of the pregnancy beyond ethical or um, religious concerns that that's that's an alternative for the parents. And second is the fact that uh, they, if, they, if they decide to continue with the pregnancy, they can take the they can have the delivery done in a place where there is a team of people working uh, with this malformation, with this type of malformation. You, the, you know, as we progress in science and technology and medicine and surgery. It's becoming evident that for certain type of malformations, it requires centers of uh, um, excellence where people dedicated focusing to these kind of, of problems. Because uh, otherwise, if we try to train every pediatric surgeon and every pediatric urologist in the management and the full management of this, after 20 years, there will be a lot of children, damaged children, and nobody will be trained. Unless we concentrate the cases in a place where there is people that is willing to sacrifice other things, because once you decided to get and become an expert in something, um, focus into something, then you are giving up other other areas very interesting in pediatric surgeons. If we become colorectal pediatric surgeons, I will not be doing esophagus, <laughs> right? That I love to do, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great point, actually. And, uh, and and speaking of that sacrifice, uh, thankfully you made that sacrifice and you're able to uh, teach us uh, what we need to know and, and probably the most important thing is when to refer when we are over our heads and, and what's going on. Um, Thank you. Dr. Pena, I, uh, before we finish up, I wanted to ask you if there was anything else that you thought we missed or we should be discussing about cloacal extrophy. No, I think... Um, I think um, the only thing that I miss is uh, the the imaging that we could that would be beautiful to show some some, um, but that would be another program, right? Another one of your yeah, where that, we could show really diagrams and illustrations and, but that, that, that in in um, a little commercial, the, the our book is finished and there's a chapter on cloacal extrophy that has great illustrations. T- tell me about your book, Dr. Yes. The, the book is, is published by Springer, Springer from Germany. Okay. But it's already it's already uh, uh, available, and right now in the electronic version, and in a few days will be the real book. But the book is done; it's finished. I know you you uh, showed me a preview of this uh, a couple of years ago, and I was blown away uh, by some of the graphics that you showed me. So I cannot wait to see the book. Yes, the book is 800 illustrations, so it's mainly... We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery. You can listen, watch, or read all content by downloading the Stay Current in Surgery app. Please send questions or comments to us at staycurrentpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.